the topic I wanted to talk about today is uh, something that I got inspired to talk about when I was um, listening to this podcast that Joe Rogan did with a scientist called Robert Schock uh, on his podcast last week. And they were initially talking about how the Sphinx is older than they think it is, or he thinks that the Sphinx is older than it's supposed to be, and um, how this actually is co um, correlated, or not correlated, is how this concept is kind of uh, matching new discoveries that they've made at this site in southern Turkey, I think it is, at a site called Gobekli Tepe, right? And this site is, I think, almost 10,000 years old. It's like 9,700 BC or something like that. So it's, it's extremely old and it's older than anything that they found with this level of technology in the past, right? They have like stone carvings. They have like giant stone walls and like very intricate tools and um, cups and stuff like that that make them that look as if they're from the Byzantine era, which is in like the 1100 AD. So it's like uh, turning over the world of archaeology, like completely changing perspective on what people thought was possible at that earlier time. And that part is important because that was just after the last ice age, which is almost 10,000 years ago, right? Or which ended 10,000 years ago. And they think that th this ice age which we think of like when the ice age ended, you probably think as I do, uh, as I did, that the glaciers like slowly retreated. And um, like if you see an ice age one or two, rather, it looks like that where there was glaciers and then they slowly move back and suddenly there's not a mile of ice on top of anything anymore. But actually what they think happened is because of some new dating technology that, that they've used, they think that the melt of the glaciers happened in a couple weeks. But that really has nothing to do with the topic, which would not, what I want <laughs> Uh, the topic which I wanted to talk about today, which is when when they when I heard about this Gobekli Tepe find, he talked about how there was probably a period where we were less advanced than we had been in the past, and that's something which us as a mainstream society is not accustomed to hearing. Right? We think of ourselves as like an ever upwards project uh, trajectory, like a projectile just going up into the atmosphere, slowly but steadily. Right? Realistically, that's not the case, as we know now. Like, there were probably times in the past where we had more knowledge than we used to, or we had more knowledge and then we lost it because of something that happened, right? And this is something that we would probably think more about if we learned, if we put more importance on history in schools, but that's another topic I don't want to get into. But the point is, like, imagine the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire had aqueducts to get water from places uh, away from the city. They had all kinds of technology and, like, building technology. They built, like, the Acropolis and stuff like that, which wasn't seen in Western society for hundreds or even thousands of years afterwards, right? Because once the Roman Empire died out, the, the next civilization to have that kind of technology was like 1200, like the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms or whatever. I'm not a history major. This is, this is not the point that I'm trying to make. The point is, there were times when we lost knowledge actively, where we went backwards. And that's something we don't really talk about as a society. We always think of ourselves as a forward-moving species that always has... Um, the path forward. And this is something that other people also mention when they talk about climate change, right? They're like, for every problem we've encountered in the past, whether it was we didn't have enough food, we invented agriculture, um, we didn't have a way to reliably get across oceans other than boats or whatever, and those things are not fast, so we invented planes or whatever, right? We've always overcome every challenge that has confronted us through innovation. Human innovation outpaces the challenge that challenges that 
we face. That's something that we've taken for granted in the past, right? We just assume that we're going to innovate a way out of any problem that we have. But in the past, that hasn't been the case. Because if you look at Gebekli Tepe, they had technology back then that they actively lost. And then we as a species went into a dark age that lasted thousands of years before society became again what it once was, right? And um, that Robert Schock guy also talked about how the pyramids may be older than we think they are. And the first pyramids are the greatest pyramids. Like the Great Pyramid in Giza is the oldest one, and it's also the biggest one. So they're th they so that kind of talks about how they had the technology to build a pyramid that big, and then they lost it. So they couldn't do it again. They had to build smaller pyramids. So that's where we're at right now. We're at a current peak in society, right? But there's no guarantee that we're going to keep advancing slowly because that's really not how it happens. Innovation always happens in spurts. Somebody does something that like radically changes some field that we think is stable, that we think is not going to have anything happen in it for decades to come. And then as soon as that person finds that thing, it advances progression in that field like many fold, right? And the last time this has happened in our history, um, that I like to think of anyway, is the um, the theory of general relativity by Albert Einstein, right? In the early 1900s, this patent clerk in Geneva, he, in, he made this theory purely because he thought outside the box. And then he came up with this theory of general relativity, which completely changed the way we thought about the world around us because it proved that Newtonian mechanics, while they did work at the small scale that we're talking about, when you speed up the things involved, they don't work anymore because of how um, light works in our universe, right? And uh, I probably should explain this more eloquently. I am a physics major, but I think that explanation suffices for the purpose we have at hand. The point is, when he made that theory... At the start of the 20th century, overwhelming opinion in the scientific world was that science as a whole was nearly complete, right? There were only one or two anomalies left to um, discover or to find a solution to, which were that some materials emit radiation, and there was one or two other things that I forget now. But that was like one of the things that they thought was just an anomaly that they could explain with the current theories that they had, and then after that, they could move on and be done with science, and science would be complete, which we know now that was radiation, and that sparked the entire uh, century of discovery which came in the 20th century and still boggles us to this day, is um, radiation and everything involved with it, right? Which is qu where quantum mechanics came from, is from radiation. The discovery of radiation eventually led to all the complicated subatomic sciences we have now. So the point is, that one discovery sparked a whole series of discoveries, right? And we're right now in a, in a, in a stagnation period, I like to think of, like in the, in the period between innovations. It's been more than 100 years since the last one, the last radical shift in thinking, right? And what do I mean by radical shift in thinking? Okay, so before Einstein, the reigning modernist, mo the modernist movement was the reigning philosophical and artistic movement in the world, right? And after Einstein, and also because of the Second World War and all those things, because of Einstein and the First and Second World Wars, we completely shifted from a modernist um, perspective where we just took the certain things for granted to a postmodern method of thinking where we consider, th we like question authorities, we take everything as to be relative because theory of relativity people, so 
And that changed the way everyone thought about everything, right? It changed chem physics, it changed chemistry, it changed biology, it changed literature, art, everything. In the 21st century, we're still looking for that spark, you know, that spark that's going to set us on our way, the next big innovation that's going to spark the re like this, it's going to be the thing that we remember happened in the 21st century, because we really don't have anything like that yet. Right. And for me, in my opinion, I think that's going to be the theory of quantum gravity. Now, that might be pretty arrogant for me to claim that as a human, that we're just going to discover the theory of quantum gravity this century. And it, it may be, we don't know. But as part of the species that invented powered flight and then 65 years later, 67 years later, went to space, that seems like a pretty achievable timeline for us, you know? Like we haven't done anything world shattering in a while. I think we're due for something really important. So that theory of quantum gravity, what will that theory allow us to do, right? What is quantum gravity? Quantum gravity, it's just a placeholder name for now because we don't know which theory it is it's going to be that eventually accomplishes this task. But the theory of quantum gravity is the theory that allows us to reconcile the theories of general relativity with the theories of quantum mechanics because currently they don't work, right? When you apply quantum mechanics to the scale of... Um, stars and everything else, it breaks down. It doesn't really work. Quantum mechanics only works when we're talking about the subatomic spaces and the small distances that are only occur within the atom or, or, or like one or two atoms distance. It only works at that distance because I don't know why, because it probably maybe it's closer to the Planck distance or something like that. But the point is, that's the only time that quantum mechanics works. When you apply it to larger scales, it doesn't work. And similarly, general relativity doesn't work on the minute scales that quantum mechanics talks about. So you have these two extreme theories that operate on either side of the spectrum, right? One governs the, the way that bodies that are very large and very massive behave, and the other or very fast also in the, in the case of special relativity. And on the other hand, you have the theory of quantum mechanics, which governs the very, very small, like the minute, the barely existing. And all kinds of weird shit happens because of that, by the way, which I'm not going to get into because this is not a quantum mechanics podcast. Okay. So when we reconcile those two theories, when, when we have one theory that can effectively explain both those phenomena without breaking down any of our currently held laws of physics, right? When we have that theory... That means that we'll get our first real look at the universe as a whole, right? Like the theory of everything, right? There's a movie called The Theory of Everything. There's a whole thing. The point is that will that will allow us to explain everything that happens in the universe in some way. But and may hopefully reveal new things because there's still 96% of the universe's energy we don't know anything about, right? The majority of the percentage of the universe's mass and energy, we have no idea what it is. Dark matter and dark energy, we have no clue whatsoever. So the hope is eventually this will reveal something about all of that. But it's not just enough that it revolutionizes the field of physics, right? Because physics is only one small part of what we do in the world as a whole. My hope is that when we find this theory, it'll allow us to go past the stagnation we're in right now, where we have this mainstream narrative, right? There's like this mainstream, um, widely held belief system. And then underneath it, there's an almost equally large mainstream counter narrative, which is not something that we've had in the past. And this may be something that just arises from us having more people in the world or us having more people that are exposed to the ideas that they can be exposed to nowadays, which was not the case earlier. And, but it turns out, it seems to me, like wherever you look, there's a mainstream narrative like the, the news, right? Take CNN, for example. How many people watch CNN versus how many people watch some like counter, counter, like subserve, subversive news channel, but like 
something that tries to be different to what the news is, like the Young Turks or something like that on YouTube, right? How many people watch that? I think the numbers are pretty pretty close from what uh, Cenk Uger likes to believe. So it seems to me like the mainstream and the counter-narrative are exactly the same, which they weren't in the 60s. In the 60s, there was um, an established, like, you go get a salary, get employed, and the hippie movement, and they were opposed to each other. And they were opposed to each other in a way because one was a subsection of the larger part, right? There were less hippies than there were mainstream people who worked office jobs. That's just the way it works, right? Because you can't have a counter-movement if the counter-movement outnumbers the mainstream movement. Then the counter-movement is the mainstream movement, and holding the mainstream belief is less niche than holding the counter-belief, the counter belief, right? And this is something that I, that I saw a movie critic say once, is like, in a weird world we live in, right, where a comic book movie, which traditionally is the counter, like that's the weird thing that people do in their basement, is now the mainstream thing to do. And um, he used the example of people went to see, more people went to see Avengers 2 than went to see a docu- uh, a biopic about James Brown. And James Brown is a mainstream uh, star. You'd think in, in, a, in a 1980s world, more people would go to see that James Brown biopic, Get On Up, than went to see Avengers 2. But the world we live in is the opposite, where we now are told to believe that whatever is the counter-narrative is the cool thing, and whatever is mainstream is lame. But mainstream has been lame for a while. But now, the counter-mainstream is so saturated that we're at the point where they're both equal in force, right? And where do we go from here? We have, like, one side, and then we have another side, and there's never the twain shall meet, right? One thinks the other is shit, and the other's... Maybe the maybe the mainstream narrative is now only occupied by old people who hold whatever belief they were told to believe when they were young as sacred, and the and the counter mainstream people think that what the opposite of whatever the other people believe is true, and they hold their beliefs to be sacred. So where do we go from here? So that's where I I I started thinking, and I and I reached this this new concept, right? It's not a new concept certainly, but I'm just calling it a new concept because it's a new concept for me, and maybe for you, who knows? So this new concept, which I'm dubbing unity theory, right? Lame, but you'll see where it works is. Because the unity that we're talking about is uniting quantum gravity, the science of the very small, and, and general relativity, the science of the very large, very massive, very fast, right? You were uniting those and creating a theory which effectively describes both without alienating either. That's the, that's the hope we have right now. And we can show that they actually work together and describe one universe, that they're not talking about two separate places. Because right now, when we look at the equations and you look at the math, it seems like one cannot be applied to the other in any sense. So effectively, they're describing two physically separate universes. They might as well be because never the twain shall meet, as we talked about earlier. So when we find this theory, what will it do? I hope it'll give us the philosophical push to overcome the extremes in our society and like arrive at an ideal right? And this ideal I'm calling the anti-narrative. It's anti-narrative because it's not trying to glom you onto it, right? It's not trying to convince you that you are the type of person that believes in this because that's currently what we're doing. There's a mainstream narrative that tells us that, oh, if you're productive, if you're useful to society, if you're good at your job, if you're if you're a salaried person, all these things, then you are part of the mainstream and you should watch CNN, you should vote Republican. And it, it doesn't matter what, you have to have this set of beliefs because you are this type of person. And if you think you're this type of person, you belong with us. That's what it's trying to say. And on the other hand, you have um, 
the counter mainstream, right? They're like, hey, uh, drugs are just substances, man. Or like, uh, hey, you can you get to choose who you love or what to do with your body or whatever. And they're like, they're like, if you hold any of these beliefs, if you think you're the type of person who is, uh, who holds any of these beliefs, accept all the others around it, and you're part of us. You're one of us now, okay? And then these two just butt heads nonstop. And they don't compromise on anything because they believe that compromise is evil, right? And that's kind of how quantum mechanics and general relativity work. You can't apply any one equation of one to the other. It's impossible because they're both describing two extremely separate systems which have nothing in common. Like an up quark has nothing in common with the black hole, right? From what we can tell, there's no... Um, system that describes the both of them equally. That's what we're looking for. So when we arrive at this theory, we finally have something that can remove the mainstream narrative, the overarching societal narrative that we can neatly slot ourselves into, and we reach a stage where we can just look for objective truth, because we'll finally have enough information to look for that, right? And because we found this theory, I hope it'll 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 keep us from dividing ourselves into camps and 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 try to unite over something. Because if we were able to unite these two things, that means we're much cooler than we think we are today. Because today we live with the knowledge that we can't do this. We live with the knowledge that there is this theory that we will eventually hopefully find that will describe the world around us much more effectively than what we can do today, but we don't have it right now. So we're incomplete right now. So when we get this theory, we'll be made whole so hopefully that encourages us to to shun the narrative and find for ourselves what works best for us like an individual truth type system and then we can move past this whole like divided society right and it's a race against time to find this theory i think because the longer we don't have it the more chance that we become permanently divided as a society because if we keep um moving forward with the knowledge that we don't have this theory that we need for us to move forward, then it basically means we're not good enough to get it. We're finally stagnating, right? And I talked about this before, but archaeologists talk about the various other hominids that came from um, Africa, right? And why we're the ones that succeeded. It's because we never stagnated as a species. And maybe I'll be disproven about this, or I don't know enough about archaeology. But the point is, other, other um, hominid species did evolve to have bigger brains, but they eventually got complacent, got stagnant in their technology, right? They stopped with stone tools or whatever. I'm not saying that they stopped at stone tools. Maybe they stopped at wood tools. I don't know where they stopped at, but they did stop. That's the point. They stopped. And if we don't find this theory of quantum gravity, right? Maybe it's something that we can't even comprehend, right? Maybe it's like a something only a five-dimensional being can come up with and us three-dimensional worms can't even imagine what kind of theory we would even need to describe these two things that seem so completely different. Maybe when you're five-dimensional and you look down at quantum mechanics and theory of general relativity, they just look so obviously connected to you. Maybe we need that kind of higher dimension perspective we just can't have, right? So that brings me to the method of finding it, right? How do we eventually end up finding this method? That's an important point as well, because the method in which we find things does eventually tell us a lot about how it will be treated, how it will progress as a science, uh, how we will progress as a society. Remember Christopher Columbus discovered, quote-unquote, the Americas in 1492 or whatever, right? If he had not been the one to discover the Americas, what if it had been a race of Pacific Islanders who discovered the Pacific? And then through them, like, 
the the Chinese people and the the Indian people sailed across the Pacific to reach the um the New World, so called. What if it had been like that? Would we have seen the kind of mass genocide and massacre that we eventually ended up seeing when Europeans came to North America? Maybe not. We don't know. But all we do know is that the Europeans were the ones who landed there. They were also the ones who landed in India and ended up in 400 years of British rule there. So what we do know is that whoever discovers something tells us a lot about what will happen in the future. So progressing off of that pattern... What if it's an AI that finds a theory of quantum gravity? What does that mean, right? And how you might be asking, how could an AI find a new theory? Well, I said in the next century, right? So we don't currently have the technology for an AI to be creative, to create something new, I don't think. It has to it'll make something um, that looks like something else it's been shown. But we haven't had an AI that can purely generate something from its own, for lack of a better word, circuits, right? They use a neuron type structure to come up with the information, right? We use the structure of the brain to create AI. That's creepy in a whole different way, but we're not talking about that right now. The point is, if it's an AI that finds a theory of quantum gravity, what does that mean, right? It'll mean that we as a, as a, as a human species have created something more intelligent than us. I don't see how you can disprove that when an AI finds a theory like that when we've had hundreds of years or at that time maybe 150 years or so to do so and we haven't right how can you argue that the ai is not more intelligent than humans when it it accomplished in such a short amount of time what we couldn't in more than a century so what is, what will that say about the society that finds um where the ai finds that theory right will we eventually like descend into an ai driven state where the state is completely uh, replaced by ai and we're all given instructions on what to do by an AI system that complete has all the information in the world and decides for us best what we need to do. I don't see how you could argue against that really, because how could you how can you say, oh, this this is the AI that found quantum gravity, right? It literally has a more unique or a more uh, defined and authoritative perspective on our world than we do because quantum gravity is a theory that describes everything. So if it's the AI that came up with that theory, how can it be not the best choice for a ruling body, right? Are you saying that humans will do a better job ruling a society than the AI that's literally more intelligent than all of us put together? Because that's that's what that means. If it finds quantum gravity before us, then that means an AI, one AI, is more intelligent than all of humanity because we're working on this together as a species, on string theory, on supersymmetry, on quantum loop gravity, all those things, right? So there's that. And I don't know about that. That sounds like it came straight out of an Isaac Asimov short story, right? Like where the the um, the analog computer sits at the center of the city and tells everyone what to do and it introduces inefficiencies into the system because if it didn't, then humanity would replace it and say, we don't need you anymore. Our society is perfect. And it deems that we need it even if we don't think we need it. So it introduces inefficiencies so that we keep it on um, so that it'll keep continuing to try to make our system perfect. I thought that that short story was amazing. If I find the name of it, I'll drop it in here or something. So there's that on one hand. But what, what what's another option, right? Another option, what if China finds the theory of quantum gravity? That's definitely possible. Don't think it's not possible. Even though the mainstream perception of China is that they're just a place that makes cheap plastic toys, they haven't been that for more than 20, 30 years now. The year is 2018, keep in mind, so definitely a possibility that they haven't been that for a long time. Now, they're investing more in technology and more in the sciences than any other country in the world. And that makes sense because they have the largest population. They also have the largest middle class in the world. I think the middle class of China is like 
double the pop the entire population of the United States or something like that. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I do think that's the case. It's, it's a very large middle class. That's why they have, they have so many Chinese tourists everywhere. It's because there's a lot more of them than there were 50, 60 years ago. So the point is, what if China finds this, right? They're investing a lot of money into 3D printing technology, into AI technology. I think the US and them are still going back and forth on who has the strongest supercomputer. Like, And if China can compete with the US on technology, because they already have the edge and everything else, right? They have they're, I think they're going to become the largest economy in the world at sometime this decade, maybe. Um, they're growing extremely fast. The state does not have any qualms about intervening in the capitalist process to give their companies an advantage over other companies, right? And there's been a long kind of shadowy history of Chinese companies doing state-sanctioned stealing of intellectual property from American and other companies. And America has traditionally been the breeding ground of innovation, right? All major innovations that we've come up with in the last hundred years have come from America. Everything. So what happens if China finds the theory of quantum gravity? Well, does that mean there's going to be a large shift in world power? Like, are we going to see an, a century of China? Which we kind of already are in like the century of China, right? Because half century of just Chinese complete dominance of the, of the commodity market. Like they make every single um, small goods that is used all around the world, they make it, right? And they've been able to do so on like this large scale just because they're so good at manufacturing these days and they're offering competitive prices on something on things that which are not competitive at all in the US, right? So recently I'm I'm a kind of a weirdo. So I uh I had I tried to get a PCB made for a keyboard, a custom keyboard PCB. And if I, I was like, okay, I don't really want to go to China. I don't really want to go to China, right? That was one of the things I started out with. I was like, hey, no China if possible. If at all possible, no China. So I tried to look for Canadian PCB manufacturers. First of all, there are not that many of them. There are actually like two in my city. And of the two in my city, both of them require you to order, I think, 500 to 1,000 minimum order quantity parts before they even make it for you. Anything for you, for that matter. And they also require you to like stop by their store and like give like they only sell business to business they don't sell to individuals at all right that's like straight out of the 1980s why do you why do i have to like walk into your office there's the internet so I, I like asked some people around and i went to a chinese site and i can submit my pcb files online they'll talk to me they'll give me a contact rep who'll take care of all my um manufacturing needs they can assemble it too the prices are much much cheaper the quality is basically the same i think it's the same actually i don't i've never heard anybody complain about um, pcb quality from china this is just one example but it's just my anecdotal experience and their minimum order quantity is five pcbs if i remember correctly so they have such an advanced manufacturing process that making five pcbs is still profitable for them or maybe it's not Maybe it's not profitable and they just eat the cost on the five PCB orders because they know that if you order five, chances are when you come back, next time you'll order 20, right? Maybe that's just their their strategy. I don't know. But the point is they're so eager to help out anyone, um, no matter how small you are, because they want all the business they can get. And maybe in the future, they too will like descend to this level where it, this level of a, like elitism where they just give access to the production to only people who have like large sums of money or something i i don't think so because the whole like concept is that they involve everyone because they want all the money that they can get from you like regardless if if you have five dollars or if you have five hundred thousand dollars right whereas here 
because of maybe like how expensive it is to employ people, they focus more on getting the large orders and then not worrying so much about the smaller orders just because that's the only way they can do things profitably. So China's already ahead of us, us, I mean the West in general, in terms of production. And at the same time, they're looking to surge ahead in technology as well, right? Because they're investing in all the technology that the U.S. is falling behind in, like 3D printing. 3D printing is one of those things in the future which could completely revolutionize the way we do everything. 3D printing could change the way we build houses. It could change the way we build anything. It could change the way we make computers. It could make them much cheaper than now. It could allow us to... Um, make computers on a much smaller scale than we have before. Like it could do so much for us. And the U.S. is not investing nearly as much as China is in that field specifically. It's just an example of one field where they're not investing as much as China, right? So what happens if China finds this theory? That means they're they're like in charge of the world for the next 100 years. I don't see how they, they, they can't be. They're already an economic powerhouse. And we're going from a, a world where learning English is the way to go to where learning Mandarin will be the way to go. It's just how things will be done in the future. You learn Mandarin just like you learn English now. There's nothing wrong with that. By God, no. I don't. We've forced the entire world to learn English. It only makes sense that if there's a new global power where they can employ like 800 million people with the amount of money that they have, you'd think that you want to learn that, that language, right? Because they're going to be in the forefront of technological progress. What about the opposite case? What if America, like we expect it to be, what if America are the ones to find the theory of quantum gravity? What does that say? What does that mean for us? Does it does it allow them to strengthen their lead? Does it allow them to cement their position in the current world? Because right now, they're in a position which is untenable, I think, in the long term, if you think about it. They have their hands in every pie there is. They have military forces where there's no reason to be. They, they, have, they have military campaigns and activities in countries where you wouldn't even think they would be in, like... South Korea, they have a military base. Like the, the U.S. military is the largest and most powerful standing army that has ever been assembled in the history of humanity. That's not even just in terms of like firepower. And with firepower, it ultimately is. Like there's not even any comparison, but just in terms of personnel as well. In Just in terms of personnel, it's the largest standing army ever assembled in the history of humanity, which makes sense if you think about it in one way, but also doesn't make sense if you think about it in a different way because we currently have more people in the world than we've ever had. So it makes sense that the largest standing army would be in our time, but it doesn't make sense that we would have the largest army now after we've had two world wars, not one, but two separate world wars in the last 100 years. Why would you even have a standing army? The whole point of postmodernism is to question what we believed earlier, and we're just building an army like nothing bad can ever happen from that. When we've clearly been shown the example that bad, bad things can happen if you just have a huge army waiting to demolish things, right? But Hey, I'm not going to get into that whole thing. Probably went into it too much. So what's the point if they find it? Does it mean that we're going to just be stuck in the, in the stagnation that we've seen now where America just has a chokehold on scientific um, progress in the entirety of the world and you have and the U.S. government is out like banning companies from selling phones in, in the U.S. because they don't want China to steal any American intellectual property, right? We, we, we see these lines being drawn in the sand here where... America is clearly taking a stand against China, where China is the type of state to get involved in businesses like this. America traditionally has not been, right? Just a, just a few days ago, they announced that AT&T into Time Warner merger, which is worth $85 billion. 
um, which is something that probably would not have happened in any other Western country except the U.S. because the U.S. has the most lax business restrictions, right? That's kind of the, the draw of the U.S. is that they don't have as much restriction on what you can do in business because live and let live is part of the philosophy of the founding fathers of America, right? There's that. So what does that mean if America find this theory? Does that mean we're just going to see more complacency, more stagnation like we've seen for the past 30, 40 years in Western society as a whole and America in particular? Are we just going to see more of this complacency where there's no willingness to invest in future infrastructure, right? The American um, internet grid is not like any other countries, any other modern countries, any other modern rich countries because there's no um, priority given to that. They prefer to just sit on their laurels and not actively try to go out and get what they don't have, right? The road system is not as good as it once was. They're not looking into any future technologies like solar highways or any of those pie-in-the-sky ideas, but there's not even been any, like, studying to see if that would even be viable, right? You'd think that would be done when they have so much um, money in their first-world country, and you have third-world countries looking into replacing their entire power grid with solar power. And maybe you're going to say like, oh, America's too large a country for that to even be viable. But what about Germany? Germany, I think, is replacing all their power with renewable power in the next 10 years, or they've already done that or something like that. Pretty much every European country has committed to completely going 100% renewables. And you can't tell me Germany doesn't have any electricity needs, right? That doesn't even make any sense because Germany is a huge country. It has 50 million people or something like that. You can't say that country doesn't have any electricity needs. If you can do it in Germany, you can definitely do it in the US, right? You can scale that technology. It can definitely work. So the point is, do, what do we want? Do we want the U.S. to get it and just see more of the complacency that we've seen? Or do you want China to get it? And do you want to see a complete radical shift? Because the change is scary. Change is always scary for humans. That's just how we work, right? Change is always scary for us. So when you look at the China future, you may think, oh, that's probably worse. I'll have to learn Mandarin or whatever, right? But is that really so much better than just being complacent as we have been for the past 30, 40 years? At least this way, world order is preserved, right? That's the only real benefit to it. But what's the ideal, right? What's like the ideal situation of who should find this, this theory? What if, what if a refugee physicist found it working in a lab in Switzerland or something, right? Einstein was in a similar position. He was a patent clerk in Geneva. At the time, Switzerland was not affiliated with any world power, but he was part of the group that would ultimately be massacred in the Second World War, right? So he's part of a marginalized group and that was ultimately good for the world because his discovery was seen as a world discovery and not subsumed into some larger entity like the US, like China or like Russia or whatever it is, right? What if a refugee or some nationless person or a child of an immigrant or someone from an unprivileged background found it? That would be perfect because it, it would allow the world to, to take on the discovery as a united species instead of it belonging to one particular place. And eventually, ultimately, when it's peer-reviewed and everything, that theory will be knowledge that the world has in general. But at the very start, Perception is very important because if it's perceived to be an American discovery or a Chinese discovery or a Russian discovery or a North Korean discovery or something, that could lead to a lot of difference in how the next 100 years play out. Because when you, when you find that theory, that means that you become the hotbed for development. You are at the center of whatever progress will ultimately be gained from having that discovery be yours, right? So that means you are at center stage for technological development in the world, which is very important. But if it's in a neutral country, if it's in an unassociated country, if it's in a country that 
which doesn't have any uh, alignment to a particular world power, like even the EU counts as a world power, in my opinion, that would be perfect for humanity as a whole. But now we're speculating like 80, 90 years into the future, and I don't feel comfortable doing that. So the whole point was to say that we've stagnated as a society and we need to do something. We need to actively go out and get what we're missing because we know we're not whole yet. And this is all speculation based on the patterns from the previous century, but history repeats, and I hope it does soon, but hopefully less violently than last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.